0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. A uh, few months ago, maybe it was weeks ago, I, said I've, I completely lost track of, of time. Uh, we were joined by Charlie Warzel, who's the author of the Galaxy Brain newsletter, former New York Times reporter. And by popular demand, um, folks really wanted him to come back. So, uh, Charlie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I, since since we spoke last, you've actually launched a new venture. Uh, you moved the newsletter Galaxy Brain to the Atlantic. Also, you're out with a new book, co-author of this new book, Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home, which you wrote with your partner, uh, Anne Helen Peterson. So uh, congratulations on that as well.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate
0: that. So before we get into any of that, and I know this is like a flashback to your previous life when you used to write about uh, the right wing fever swamps, you tracked the whirlwind of crazy when it was sort of out there in the fever swamps. And and now we're realizing that that whole whirlwind had engulfed the White House <laughs> over the last several years, including the events surrounding January 6th. You know, you and I were chatting just briefly. I, I would think that after four or five or six years of following these guys, we would have lost our capacity to be shocked. But still, it's kind of amazing. Some of the things that are coming out, including these these text messages. I mean, how do you feel about this? I, I mean, you've been writing about this, the, the crazy right wing and everything. But to you know see the PowerPoint, to see Mark Meadows text messages, it's still amazing, isn't it?
1: yeah I mean, I think the first thing is that the uh the slide deck comes for us all at some point uh, <laughs> uh, that's that's the first lesson uh i you know the 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 text that I found probably the most interesting were the ones uh, from uh the Fox News primetime mm-hmm. lineup and the way that it that it showed that all of those people were actually having the same reaction to the images from January sixth as we were uh, I mean maybe not exactly the same, but what they saw was truly terrifying, and they were worried
0: about it. They were worried for political reasons, but uh, but they were but still they, concerned. And, and but they adapted very very quickly, including by that night. So, since you mentioned that, let let's play a little of a soundbite. Um, the uh, I think one of the most dramatic uh, developments uh, last night was uh, Liz Cheney, uh, the vice chairman of the uh, January Six uh, Committee, is actually reading aloud during the the debate over uh, criminal contempt charges against Mark Meadows. Mm -hmm. Reading aloud some of these texts, let's just play about a minute and a half of this.
2: According to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get (laughs) him on TV. Destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Mm. Quote, can he make a statement? Ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. (laughs) As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president, quote, We need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. But hours passed without necessary action by the president. These non privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty during those 187 minutes.
0: So Charlie wars what's really striking about this is they they all knew they all knew at the time that it was terrible I mean including people who have since tried to retcon the whole experience it was no big deal it was exaggerated it was a tourist visit now we're finding out that they knew exactly what was going on. I, I I think and I want to get your reaction to this. Laura Ingram is the most interesting in many ways because she was saying, you know, how terrible this was, this destroyed. But then that night she goes on the air and you know begins, you know, leading with maybe it was Antifa sympathizers or provocateurs, one point <laughs> suggesting to Kevin McCarthy that only three dozen people were involved, but now we know that what she was saying privately bears almost no resemblance to what these folks said publicly to their audience. Rather extraordinary.
1: Yeah. It, it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great look at how, uh, at how these folks are propagandists, uh, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, what it really reminds me of is my time when i was reporting on we talked about this last time mm-hmm. uh alex jones and spending time talking to former staffers at infowars and and people that knew alex through different points of his life and career and uh, there was this, there was this entire conversation around i, I was profiling him uh, around uh, whether or not you know alex believed what he says uh and it became very it was first it was an obsession of mine to think yeah. you know okay i i got to know is this guy acting is he a true believer and it became just incredibly clear you know a month or so into the reporting that none of that matters and and i think <laughs> it's it's a very because because what matters is the words that get disseminated to millions you know i mean if it, it, this is obviously really damning evidence that, uh, that, that, you know, this group is willing to memory hole an event that, that as they witnessed, you know, was, was terrifying. Um, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't matter what their private actions say or, or what, or what they, it's all that it matters is what they choose to, you know, tell their audience of millions every night in the way that they, uh, <laughs> you know, basically con them. And and the last thing I'll say is when you hear, uh, Liz Cheney read, those texts and hear, you know, the president's son pleading, <laughs> these Fox News hosts pleading. The only thing I can think of is, man, all these people want to do this again for another four years, huh? Like Isn't this thing amazing? where yeah. they have to, you know, where crazy stuff happens that is super dangerous and scary, and they have to plead with the president's handler. To, you know, try to get him to uh, to to quell the chaos. It really sounds like like a fun time that uh, I would love to see the sequel.
0: Yeah, let's 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 do this. Let's do this all over again. Let's put him back in the Oval Office. I think it was a year ago today, by the way, that Bill Barr resigned as attorney general. Um, we haven't heard much from from him lately. See, the problem, of course, with stories like this, and you can tell that the Fox News folks find this embarrassing because they haven't even mentioned it uh, this morning. None of them have reported on it. This was, of course, you know, leading every other discussion about what happened over the last uh, twenty four hours, not even mentioned by any of the hosts whose texts were were read. But ultimately, Charlie, you, you know that it won't really hurt Fox because uh, as my colleague Sarah Longwell tweeted out, Uh, they'll weather it because nobody really at this point expects more from Fox. I mean, you know, like there's not going to be no indignation that really Fox news hosts have been shilling for the president and his legacy. Yes, we kind of knew that. Right. Plus their audience doesn't care if they even ever hear about it. So this, this is, this is not going to be one of those turning points for okay. now people realize that Fox news is just propaganda. You know, right? Yeah,
1: I I think it's a it's a really important point because I do think it's easy to get kind of caught up in the you know the the daily dramas of of, of all of this, and it's not to say that something like a commission on January sixth isn't important. It is, but the way that our media ecosystem is now set up with the right wing media ecosystem just so operating completely autonomously, let's say, right? Uh, it. it yeah, it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, the, the thing that I sort of, I think, secretly hope for when I see that is is that, you know, the the, the diehard MAGA true believers will cast out Hannity or or Laura Ingram yeah. because, you know, because they're not necessarily true believers. But at, at, at this point, it doesn't really matter. People are just, they're signing up for what they want, which is a a direct line of propaganda, you know, right into the vein. And that's what they're getting.
0: Well, and as you point out, I mean, I think people need to also understand that it is an ecosystem. It's not just one outlet. Every time you know someone says, well, the, the real problem here is Fox News, I always say, okay, but it's Fox News, but you have to understand there's an entire universe around Fox News that people get their information in this. And again, ecosystem is the best term that I can come up. Alternative reality silo that's reinforced, but also make sure that that nobody goes too far, right? I mean, Fox News is constrained by what it can do because you know, it lives in the universe where its audience gets information from Facebook, from a variety of different sources out there. They have competition from OAN and from Newsmax. So there is this whole sort of cloud of acceptable opinions and alternative realities that they exist in that's pretty much impenetrable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really good example of, <laughs> I think a lot of people feel this in electoral politics, but there are obviously, I'm not trying to take their autonomy away from them and, and the decisions that they make, but you know, there's this idea that they're almost all kind of held captive by the true believers, right? There, there's a lot of people who don't want to make the the full MAGA pivot, but they have no choice but to do it if they want to stay, you know, active in the party and have, you know, proximity to power. Yeah. And I think it's the same with the media ecosystem, right? Like, I, you know, you, all, you hear about people at Fox News who either leave or who say, oh, you know, I didn't like that. Uh, but yeah. they're kind of held captive to the audience that wants the absolute most extreme, uh, you know, version of this news and because there is an ecosystem built all around like you said that exists from you know from facebook pages to trolls on message boards to you know whatever uh, anonymous twitter accounts you kind of have to keep up with the yeah, joneses in exactly in that right. sense and so in some sense there are i'm sure there are people at fox news who who you know and again this makes it very shameless right but who are who are saying and doing things they don't necessarily want to do or that maybe that they don't necessarily believe because that's what they have to do to feed that audience.
2: And
0: ultimately, that was the decision that uh, that Chris Wallace had to make, right? That that I could either you know stay here and play this game, or I just need to leave. I just need to get out of this bubble. Which which of course he did. Yeah, and I think she- there, Shepard Smith made the same decision.
1: I think that there were a lot of people I that I saw reacting and saying, "Oh man, well Fox is just like I mean, now what what do they have?" And it's and and you know, I, there's no universe or there's no reality let's say where you know where chris wallace is is actually you know the the last line of defense i mean he was just he was just an outsider at this point at the networks and right i don't th- i don't think any one person being there can save fox for what it is if anything it it, it casts you know having no sort of real news, you know, person to be act as a, as a shield or as a cover uh, for your operation in some ways just makes the reality more clear, which is that, you know, Fox is, is obviously a, a lost cause there.
0: So let's, let's pivot a little bit here. I've been like everybody else trying to, you know, look back at 2021, the various themes, the reality versus the expectations and clearly one of the great developments uh, of of the year has been our relationship to work. So you, your book has come out at a very, very timely moment. Again, the book is out of office. The big problem and the bigger promise of working from home. We are a nation of workaholics, but you argue that that do you think we've now reached an inflection point that this pandemic, which has affected us all in so many different ways. But the most significant seems to be how and when we work, and especially for people like me, and you, uh, who've been doing it remotely since early you know, 2020, where we were. So pre-pandemic, we Americans work more hours than their ca- counterparts in comparable countries. So we are a nation of workaholics. So talk to me a little bit about this and why you think that this last year has been such an inflection point.
1: So I think the most interesting bit of this is that technology has enabled us to be so much more available with our work. We, you know, we are we are constantly sort of tethered to our jobs at all at all times. And you know, the promise of that technology is a little bit more flexibility, right? If you can if you can work any time, well, then maybe you should be able to work anywhere. But even as all this technology came to the fore and got it became adopted, and our jobs became connected to the internet. For years, people asked their bosses, Hey, can I, can I, can I work, can I work Friday from home or can I, can I, you know, I I got an elderly, you know, mother, I I would really love to go and visit and, and take care for a couple of weeks and you know, whatever, whatever it is, people have been asking their bosses, their employers for flexibility and the employers have standard line for all these multiple decades, which is if you leave the nucleus of the office. Everything is going to unravel, productivity is going to plummet. Uh, the c- company culture is you know is not going to be held together or it'll grow toxic. Um, it is extremely important that we all be in this space for yeah. reasons maybe you don't even understand you know what the pandemic did I like to think of it as like a you know a control experiment uh, where we all we all completely changed the way that we work in the knowledge work industry and what ended up happening was everything kept going, right? Nothing catastrophic happened. Productivity was just fine. Uh, It it was difficult, obviously, because of a pandemic, but we got through it. And so people are looking at that and they're saying, man, that line was BS. Mm -hmm. Well, what else about the way that we work is BS or is simply a line from my employer that benefits them, you know, to my detriment? and i think that you know that sounds very simple but i think it's a really profound thing because it causes people to question the first principles about the way that they work and if you start doing that you know i speaking from personal experience and from the 700 people we've interviewed for this book it is it leads you to some really interesting places it really does it's 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 that i think is is what this moment is about it is it is a, an opening of the mind to say wow like what are all these vestigial elements of work that are just that no longer make sense and it seems like they've they've been driving me crazy so let's try to find a, a better way
0: see uh, the way you sketch out what happened i think is going to resonate with a lot of people because okay we start working from home during the pandemic there's this obsession with productivity Really felt like it ramped up. People really doubled down on their jobs they didn't want to be laid off. They were worried about what was going to happen. Right. But then at some point uh, that, you know, after all of the slacking, the emails, the zoom meetings, people hit a wall of burnout. When, when, talk to me about that, because I think a lot of us can recognize that, that, you know, maybe initially there was this concern, well, people are not going to be coming into office. They won't be working that hard. In fact, they were never not working. I think one of the things that I've experienced <laughs> is that that um, you would think that I would have all of this extra freedom. But when I actually went to work there was that line where I was at work and then I was not at work. Now it's all blurred, right? You're always at work. You're always online. You're always on call. So when did the burnout really hit? Well, I think we've been building to that for for a long time in American office culture. And
1: and some people obviously were burned out before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason why we titled the book, The, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise, speaks to these two things, right? The the big problem is exactly what you described with remote work, where it becomes this—if if not done properly, if not implemented, um, you know, very conscientiously and and designed by your employer to to help you, the worker. What's going to happen is you're not going to work from home, you're going to live at work, essentially. Right. And you are going to you know, have a complete destruction of any semblance of work-life balance. And this is something that, that happened to me in 2017 when I first started working remotely. I thought it was a perk that I had to earn. And in order to earn that perk every day, I worked constantly to protect right. this thing that I never actually enjoyed because of the fact that I was working so hard to keep the perk. That is a real problem, and it is a definite possibility that the future of knowledge work moves in that direction, where we are all just chained to our desks mm-hmm. all day, and employers install surveillance software that tracks our eye movements to make sure. You know, I mean, and it's truly a nightmare. That is a, that is a nightmare future, and the office, you know, that would be better. Future.
0: Would be better than that. That is dystopic.
1: <laughs> it is yeah. the the bigger promise though, is that we really believe that working from home. Can, removes you from that office environment and that the office environment has this ability to kind of obscure or paper over a lot of the issues in organizations that make us miserable. You know, I, the, the office and and the sort of the the performative busyness shows us the ways in which work creeps mm-hmm. into all of the corners of our lives. And so I'll use myself as an example. When we were working at BuzzFeed, I met my 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 partner there and who's obviously my co-author. Mm-hmm. Uh we, all of, it was a you know a fun media tech startup that was young and in its in its you know in its infancy. And it had a lot of cool amenities. It was really fun in the office. There was a real kind of culture of let's all go out afterwards and go to the bar and, and mm-hmm. hang out. Well all of my coworkers became My closest friends and i started pushing all the other outside relationships in my life you know sort of towards the 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 fringes of my life we started spending all our time with people where we worked and then we worked more as a result and we were kind of always in this blurred line of is this social life or is this work who can say and it 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 became it became just the normal and then when we moved away to montana in 2017, that distance made it immediately clear the ways in which I was a one-dimensional person. I was a work robot. I didn't have hobbies. I didn't have friendships outside of work that were really meaningful anymore. I'd let them all go fallow. I, you know, my, my spouse was my coworker. It was, it was really stark. And the office did a real kind of sneaky job of obscuring that reality. And so we think that that removal kind of allows you to take an inventory of your life and to see the ways in which, man, you know, we are giving so much of ourselves to our jobs. And oftentimes we are giving the best version of ourselves and our family, our friends, our charities, our communities, whatever, our our, our religious institutions, they are getting what's left over. They are getting, you know, the, the, the sort of, the the end dregs in the mug of tea and i think that's profoundly sad and i think that it it actually you know highlights a lot of what's wrong in american society um that you know we're 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 giving we're giving our best selves to work and 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 not to these other institutions that really matter
0: and contribute to the fabric of of life so it's not just the office culture It's, it is the whole attitude that that Americans that we have for careers, right? That that the career is who you are. The career is synonymous with your identity, which means, as you point out, that there are no guardrails, that work is always there, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're, we're somewhat different than other countries. I mean, I mean, how do we compare to other, you know, wealthy countries, people like, you know, Germany or the Netherlands, um. You know, we, yeah. we, we think, you know Americans like to pride themselves that we're not France, but I don't think that anybody really thinks of Germans as slackers necessarily.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't have the stats in front of me, but it's but it's staggering. I mean, we work more than other countries. Let's save you know maybe maybe China, right? But but it's also it's not just the fact that we work more. It's as you as you pointed out, it's the sort of valorization of it, right? And. You know, a, a very good example is what we've found is when a person lets work dominate their life and in an organization and completely, completely gets rid of any semblance of work life balance, they're sending emails out at 9pm, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're calling people up on weekends to, you know, get some information, whatever it is. What that does is th- that's not, in, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That makes more work for other people in your company. That brings other people into, into your orbit and sort of forces them to work. Also, everyone is comparing themselves to uh, their colleagues and and people nearby them. So, so then they work, you know, in order to look good by comparison. But all of this is, this is the breaking of, of set barriers. So, so a lot of companies, what they do is they say, hey, we'd like you to install, you know, some personal boundaries. We want you to you know, don't send email after, you know, 6 PM. But then the people who break those personal boundaries, they aren't, you know, brought aside and, and, and lectured or, or, you know, or, you know, read the riot act. They're valorized. It's wow. You know, like the, the boundaries of the normal workday can't contain this really good worker. And it's a, it's a path forward. So everyone else starts competing, starts going, going as well. And it's, it's really, though, it's a crappy behavior. It's a behavior, you know, that is just highly individualistic. It has no real respect for the other people around you and what their circumstances are. And yet, in American work culture, that is idealized. And I think it really, you know, more than the than the than necessarily the hours worked, it's this idea of how much of yourself can you give to your job and how much can you, you know, ignore all the basic human needs that you have, like sleep or time with family. And if you can, if you can sort of, you know, accomplish those feats of strength, well, then, then, then you're a good worker and by virtue, a good person.
0: So you interviewed more than 700 people for this book, and and you asked them how long it would take them to complete their tasks every week. Because, of course, one of the one of the orthodoxies that you're challenging is the whole idea of the nine to five workday or the 40 hour week or anything. So, you know, what was the feedback you got? How long does it actually take you to get the job done? What do people say?
1: This was one of my favorite things because yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a specific question that we asked people. So mm-hmm. uh, you know we we probably we spoke to individually to you know over a hundred people, and then we surveyed uh, a lot of other people with a series of pretty exhaustive questions. But the question that wasn't on there was, how long does it take you to get your your week's worth of work done? But in the answers, people interestingly enough, found space in the answers to confess that Oh man, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm usually just kind of performing for my boss and sending emails that don't really matter and <laughs> sitting in meetings that don't really get anything done. And then my kids go to bed at you know 8 p.m. and I spend on Thursdays between eight and you know 1:30 in the morning and I get all my work done for the week. And people would confess that, like, you know, it's usually one or two really productive sprints where I get the things done that are like, you know, to quote, they use a bad office term, the deliverables, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the presentation gets done or, you know, the, the sales, uh, pro- get processed, whatever, whatever it is. And I thought that that was, you know, so, so telling that there are so many people out there who are performing for their superiors and for their, their coworkers
0: instead of actually doing the work. You've used this word several times, performing performance, performative, that a lot of this is we sort of go through these kabuki dances of looking busy, of doing stuff, when it actually doesn't accomplish anything whatsoever. They're, you know, the overlong meetings, pointless emails, right? Things like that. Or just, you know, looking like you're not just hanging around, walking around the office with a coffee cup.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, and again, it's because of that. There's a few reasons, right? One is that I think that there is a real sense of precarity that hovers over so many workers uh in in america and obviously this pertains to frontline workers and service workers but it it pertains just almost just as much to you know white collar office workers People are all, you know, employed at will um, and companies for the last many decades have gone through this you know stretch of getting, getting big and growing and then all of a sudden downsizing and just getting rid of their workforce. So people feel this sort of sense of precarity in their jobs. And when you feel that way, what you do to compensate is you try to show your value in as many ways as is possible. Well, there isn't actually that much work to be done. And so what you end up doing is, and, and, and I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. When I was working at, at BuzzFeed, I would wake up in the morning and I'd send a few emails just checking in with some people because it kind of created like a paper trail, right? right.
0: <laughs> it was some way to share. I'm, I'm doing stuff, right? I'm, I am engaged.
1: And, and, and the thing that, you know, as, as I mentioned before, what that does is it creates work for other people. You know, and I think that as as silly and simple as it sounds, we don't think enough of our coworkers as real people who are just as stressed and busy and anxious and thinking about the January sixth <laughs> coup yeah. and you know, dealing with the pandemic and sick kids and blah, 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 blah blah. We don't think of them as that. We think of them as like nodes of productivity, right? ways to get from A to B. And a great thing about this rethinking of work and this remote work is it really emphasizes and helps you focus on your coworkers as people and how to work with them as people, what their, what their desires are, the ways that they work best. It's, it's a much more intentional
0: Wave well, about. Let, let me let me flip this around so one of the things that's also happened is because everybody's not putting in nine to five or whatever it is you know here in the midwest it's always eight to five mm-hmm. um the, and you know with people working remotely in some ways it kind of drains the swamp out and we see exactly what people are doing you know you you just see their the, the work product obviously some workers are working harder than other workers some are more productive than others there's always going to be this built-in resentment from the people who are carrying the load versus the people who are, because this is human nature, who are slacking a little bit. So there's always going to be that tension. You don't want to be the slacker, but also there's going to be resentment for the people who are, in fact, working harder, right? I mean, how? so how do employers deal with that? How do you address that? So... I think that uh, one of the one of the surprises
1: in the book in terms of the reporting that I did as someone who doesn't you know write, <laughs> kind of yeah. came to this subject somewhat fresh, yeah. was I spoke to a lot of management consultants, and that sounds pretty dry, but it was some of the most interesting reporting that I've done in, in a while. And these people described, especially at like you know fast growth tech companies, this phenomenon that we call in the book add-on management, which is basically there's an employee who's really good at what they do and just excels and let's call let's say this person is you know a, a computer programmer and they say you get it we'd really love if you would take a team of programmers and 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 lead them and this person is you know maybe actually kind of like a doesn't have like the the greatest disposition for you know social skills uh, right. but they they look at it and they say well it's a raise it's maybe the only way for advancement if i don't say yes then i look lazy so, okay, I'll do it. Well, these firms are so focused on growth, they move so fast. It turns out that in a lot of places they just don't really do any any meaningful training. Maybe they sit through, you know, one session. And in some cases, they don't even know what their job is as a manager. And not only that, but they have to do their old job too. They still have to, you know, program, they're, they're leading a team, but they're also a part of it. And what ends up happening is that they do a terrible job managing and communicating to people what their jobs are. And you have this just dysfunctional system. And, and we heard all these horror stories. This, you know, like one department had a massive gender pay disparity where the men were making, you know, almost double the women. And finally, you know, it got elevated up to HR. Well, it turns out it wasn't malicious, it was that the, the manager, the middle manager, had no idea. That they were in charge of pay raises would have loved to give <laughs> this person a raise, but had no idea. And that's kind of the dysfunction that we're seeing. And and the reason why I, I I kind of preface with that long ramble is what we are seeing in general is that offices are so kind of dysfunctional and moving so fast to adapt in these environments that many workers don't actually know what their job is. And that sounds really silly, but you know they do their job. They but there's a lot of insecurity about what are my actual responsibilities? What are my actual outputs? What is it that I, you know, that I'm actually being evaluated on as opposed to what I do every day? And what's the discrepancy between that? And a lot of managers don't necessarily know how to manage or what their job is or what's expected of them. And it creates this, it breeds a lot of the resentment that you're just talking about, right? Because you have somebody who isn't picking up a lot of the slack and yet they're, you know, they're not being talked to about it. They're not being managed. The, the, the work is not fairly distributed and that kind of resentment, you know, you can sweep that under the rug for a while, but it always comes back up. And what it ends up doing is it create, it it blows up and it talk about destroying productivity.
0: So let's talk about the great resignation. I mean, we have this, we're in this moment now where where employers are, you know, complaining about a labor shortage because of this great resignation. While you have millions of people who've been unemployed because of COVID, we should break this down a little bit many of the people who've quit their jobs, uh, are in the service industries, um, you know, food service, uh, uh, others, your book is really aimed at the 40% of people who are able to work from home and would like mm-hmm. to continue to do it. So, I mean, there, there is that difference. So talk to me about what is driving the great resignation as you describe it in your book.
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate you making, making that distinction. Um, it, this this book is primarily focused on knowledge work but as I'll clunkily try to describe here no. I do think that there are you know there are relations to the two of them and and that some of these problems are apparent in both so what I think is driving the great resignation is in general, a similar sense of burnout and that, and that, and that, that work is unsustainable and in the, in the service and sort of, you know, the, the, the frontline, uh, industries, you know, a lot of resignations in healthcare, you know, reacting to the treatment of, of medical professionals during COVID. There's this sense that they are not respected. They are not paid a, you know, a fair wage. The wages are stagnant. Mm. Um, and, and that you know I, it's it's really sort of a desperate attempt at trying to gain some some worker power and i think it's i think to some degree it is working in the knowledge work sector i think what's similar is that this is a an attempt to speak to employers in a language that they actually understand which is their bottom lines, which is creating, you know, there's a lot of companies that haven't adapted well, that have forced employees back into the office or, um, or you know, haven't, haven't yeah. complied with COVID regulations or don't really care that when the whole world shut down and people were hiding from a deadly virus, work continued almost as usual. Uh, people were homeschooling their kids, you know, and, and there's so much resentment built up and this feeling yeah. that employers don't trust employees to do their jobs and employees don't trust the employers to have their best interests at heart. But what's most interesting to me about all of this I think is the youngest the sort of Gen Z response to huh. coming into oh. the workplace. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but one thing that 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 we've seen is they've they're really quick to question the American notion of the career and the very specific American notion of what we've been talking about here, which is I am going to work all the time. I'm going to give my best self to this employer who, you know, at any minute might downsize me and, you know, get rid of my health insurance and, you know, cause me to, you know, go into a a tailspin financially if if I get sick when I don't have health insurance. I'm going to work for them and kind of just, you know, take a lot of crap for 40 years. And then at the end of that time, I'm going to get a couple of years to myself, you know, with maybe my significant other to enjoy life to the fullest. And they're looking at that. They're seeing the way that their parents are, you know, struggling at work with all of these same things they're seeing, you know, worker protections kind of stripped away broadly and they're saying, man, that looks like a
0: bad deal. <laughs> okay, so this is what I wanted to get to, which is how much of this is generational. The I, mean, I know you saw the New York Times piece a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, the 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds who work for them. <laughs> 20-somethings rolling their eyes at the habits of their elders, referring to 37-year-olds, is a longstanding trend. But many employers say there's new boldness to the way the Gen Z is dictating uh, everything. So let me read a paragraph here. It's a fault line that crisscrosses industries and issues. At a retail business based in New York, managers were distressed to encounter young employees who wanted paid time off when coping with anxiety or period cramps. At a supplement company... (laughs) A Gen Z worker questioned why she should be expected to clock in for standard eight-hour days when she might go through her to-do list by the afternoon. And we talked about that. At a biotech venture, entry-level staff members delegated tasks to the founder. And spanning sectors and startups, the youngest members of the workforce have demanded what they see as a long-overdue shift away from corporate neutrality toward more open expression of values, et cetera. So, There seems to be some real cultural tension between Gen Z, Gen X, the few boomers who are left in the workforce. Is I mean, how how is that playing out? How significant is 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 that in what you're describing here?
1: I I think I think it is significant, you know. And there's there's this way in which some of that can be framed as oh my gosh, like look at these, look at these entitled kids coming into the thing. But if you you, yeah. But if you listen to some of that stuff, what they're saying is, hey, this is inefficient. Why am I sitting here doing nothing, performing for you when I get all my work done? Why wouldn't you want me then to go and clock out, be better rested, less resentful, you know, like what we're learning in, in a lot in a lot of this reporting, and and by looking at the you know the way that a four let's say a four day work week uh, boosts mm. productivity is that less but more focused work is often better work, and that is that's a pretty profound thing. But to to go back to go back to this, I think that speaking as a millennial who you know basically graduated college from into the, uh, into the financial crisis and watched as, you know, most of my, my friends struggled to, uh, to get, to get jobs. And, uh, and, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of the stats where you have people of, of my generation looking, you know, not to, um, not to earn as much as, as, as their parents and, and have a sort of, a, perhaps a lower overall mm-hmm. standard of, of living, a lot of millennials came into this and and sort of had to jump onto the treadmill of productivity, you know, right. a, as a way to survive, as a way to just you know get get their foot in the door. And there was this kind of feeling of of again of precarity uh, in terms of their careers that that I think really haunts a, a lot of us. So and you can of see course, why we're raised yeah. we're raised by by boomers who have a very specific type of of you know feeling towards and and work ethic which which you know i think is is rooted in in you know their upbringings and i think gen z comes in and all they know is that kind of financial precarity right there's just a financial crisis every every, every yeah. couple of years there's political crises there's climate change to deal with and and there's sort of a it's a what do we have to lose kind of spirit here right i mean we might only have so many so many years left of a, of a healthy planet. Well, then why don't we, you know, why don't we just try to fix some of these things? And right. I, and I think it's, I think it's profound. I, re, I really there do. No I know there's a way to sneer at it. And a lot of people do, but I think that they are, you know, this is what you want out of your younger generations. You want them to question everything and, and try to find new ways forward instead of just blindly accepting the way that things were done before.
0: But but you can certainly understand how the millennials would resent these entitled Gen Zers that there'd be real tension, especially if you've spent the last several decades working your ass off, you know, on, on the grindstone to see the folks coming in and you know, or you know, not really that interested in keeping the same hours. Not really the ones hanging around. I mean, you know, I they tell the story of this thirty-year-old elderly guy who <laughs> founds this company. And he noticed as he recruited Gen Z employees that some had no interest in the rigid work habits that felt natural to his mostly millennial 10-person team. He and his co-founder were accustomed to spending late nights in the office obsessing over customer feedback and sharing Chinese takeout, Gen Zers. Eh, they wanted to set their own hours. Mm-hmm. So wh- wh- who's ever right here, you can, you can kind of imagine that there's going to be a push-pull there. And, um, there, 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 might be some glitches in communication. I think there's,
1: there's definitely going to be a, a lot of, a lot of that, um, a lot of that kind of conflict, but you know, what's interesting is I was talking to an HR consultant who basically comes into companies and, and, uh, you know, that have problems in their company culture and, and interviews employees and then gives the, you know, the dirt to executives and, what he's noticing across the board is that this conflict is already there. It's already been baked in. What's the only thing that's really fundamentally different is that this generation is, is airing that publicly and that that is, that is just, I think that's actually a healthier way to do things because then you get a chance to address it. And, and I think that what we're, what we're in right now is this kind of interesting moment where employ employers are realizing just how much distrust and discontent there has been that had been sort of papered over and under the surface. And and the last point I'll make with this is that mm. this is also a result of not being in the office because yeah. when you are removed from that environment again, it all starts to mean a little less, right? The the office, we, we kind of, not joke, but we write in the book um, lightly that offices are bullies. And one of the reasons they are is because they're they're like intimidating structures, right? Like sure. they are just in general a reminder that the corporation is bigger and more powerful than you will ever be. Right. If you they're remove big, that, small. Yeah. if they remove that, you start to sort of see the office for what it is and hey, maybe it's a, maybe it's a manager who's, you know not all that smart, not all they're cracked up to
0: be. So when you talk about this being profound, really it is, it goes back to the question that people are asking themselves, what is, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And I, I I can remember, you know, the, the, the old adage that, you know, on people, you know, on your deathbed, nobody ever wishes they spent more time at the office. I mean, that's been Hmm. around for decades, but nobody really wanted to act on it. Right. I mean, it was, you thought it, you knew it, but this was the way things were. And now you're having this great resignation, but it's also the result of kind of this great questioning that you're just dis- dis- discussing. Um, what is my identity? What do I value? Um, and feeling empowered now to think that, that that if I value different things, then I can act on that. Um, and, that and I think that's, that's kind of the point that you're making here, that is that this is a deeper and more profound shift in priorities among among the workers, and and you know the the, the workplace is now going to have to compete with that or adapt to that. Yeah, and, and so you know you focus a lot on on politics. Mm-hmm. When we look
1: at some of the the, the, the real problems in a, in American life, and the way that you know we don't talk to each other anymore, the way that you know things are so. Bifurcated and so many people feel so disconnected and alienated and alone and angry. I, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but this kind of toxic relationship to work plays a part in it. You know, yeah. it, it it is, it it breeds in us such an individualist mentality because, you know, we have to, we have to labor all the time in order to take care of, you know, us, ourselves, and our and our families. But You know, we've kind of gotten rid of the the collectivist spirit that that is so crucial to, you know, making making a country not just, you know, exist, but but thrive. I mean, if you look at American community life, it is so much more siloed we did a lot of you know research into sort of the the post-war membership you know of of, of clubs and mm-hmm. and churches and 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 groups like you know like the the elks or or, or what have you um there was so much community involvement in joining and part of that what that does is it allows you to see your neighbors as real people even if you disagree with them, even if you have different backgrounds and, and upbringings, they're real people on the other side of things. And you know what? What American life feels like right now is this constant race. You are constantly just beating back, you know, your 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 bills, your inbox, your uh, you know, your all of the demands on you, and all of this again, this precarity, and you don't have any time to participate in the community. You don't have any time to give back and you don't have any time to see the people around you as other human beings because you're just working in service of this institution that demands so much from you. And I'm not saying again that that this is, you know, if if we all work less or, you know, reevaluate our relationships to knowledge work, that everything is going to change and the country will be united. But I think that it's, it's a necessary shift because when we look at, at, at where, where we are right now, it is bleak and it is very individualistic. And I think this is a small thing that people can start to do in a, in a sort of a reimagining that will turn us a little bit more towards that, you know, collectivist impulse
0: the book is out of office the big problem bigger promise of working from home by charlie warzel and ann helen peterson charlie warzel thank you so much for coming back on the podcast i appreciate it very much thanks for having me and also to check out uh, charlie's uh, new newsletter through the atlantic uh, galaxy brain thank you all for listening to today's bulwark podcast i'm charlie sykes we will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over
2: again